You are listening to the podcast of the Y Church of the Elk River YMCA in Minnesota. Our mission is to seek Jesus, connect together, and share his love. Now we will turn to Galatians, and I'd invite Pastor Andrew and Barb, our scripture reader, to please join us up front. I'll be reading Galatians 2, 1 through 10. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preached among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. The matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. As for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Cephas, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. Well, good morning. It's great to be with you in the Word today and looking again at this letter to the Galatians that Paul has written. And we'll be in this letter for some time now. And Bjorn wrapped up chapter 1 last week and drew out, I think it was six principles from that passage that are really useful for us to receive and apply in our life. And we are continuing to look at this letter that Paul has written this morning. It really is this letter. We see the places and people that he met or was at, uh, some reference to time as well, and that continues in chapter 2. Now remember that Paul had already experienced radical life transformation in encountering Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. So that happened and, and set off so much in his ministry. Paul went from persecuting Christians to now sharing the gospel, specifically to Gentiles, and that word referring to those who are not Jewish. We learn in these first 10 verses of chapter 2 how Paul was diligent in preaching the gospel to non-Jewish people, even though there were people that came against that. And yet he was supported and had the fellowship from the apostles in Jerusalem. Verse 1 of chapter 2 references a time period of 14 years. Now, scholars aren't totally sure if that's referring to 14 years since his previous visit to Jerusalem or if that's 14 years marking time from his conversion. But although Paul doesn't name the starting point of this journey to Jerusalem, it was evidently from the territories of Syria and Cilicia. And we see that earlier in chapter 1. So if you look on the map, you'll see the circle around Syria, Cilicia, that town Antioch is marked there. And then further down, you see the red arrow pointing at Jerusalem. And that would be a distance of about 300 miles. If you were good at walking a lot during the day, that could take you like two weeks. The significance 
of Jerusalem was that this was where the first center of the church was. The church leaders in Jerusalem were those who were disciples of Jesus, those who had seen him, who had lived with him, knew and followed him during his earthly ministry. And we also see in verse 1 reference to a couple of people's names, Barnabas and Titus. The significance of Barnabas was that he was Paul's senior colleague in leadership of the church of Antioch. Barnabas and Paul were close associates, and like Paul, Barnabas was a Jew who had become a Christ follower. And the significance of Titus is somewhat different, and it's very important for us to understand who Titus is and why he, as a Gentile, would have received the gospel and that that would be something that was okay to do and acceptable. And again, that sets the tone for through this day for us as well, who are Gentiles, who can receive the gospel message. Now, in verse 2, we might be quick to go past those first words, but I think they're very interesting to note that Paul received a revelation. He didn't receive an invitation by someone coming to him on foot or passing off a letter to him. He didn't go to Jerusalem because of his own personal interest or idea or because of any sort of human communication with him. But Paul went in response to a revelation, a revelation that came from God. And remember that Paul is the same man who had once been persecuting the church. Just a few lines up in chapter 1, we see him referencing that. Paul didn't stop after he encountered Jesus. He didn't stop what he was doing and then just lead a quiet life in obscurity. He experienced a radical transformation that affected the trajectory of his life forever once he experienced the risen Lord Jesus. Paul received a revelation from God And this is something that he writes about that makes me think that it was commonplace for him to receive revelation from God. It wasn't the revelation, it was a revelation. And with that revelation, Paul has direction of what to do and where to go, and he acts on it. And that same is available for us too, that we would have a relationship with God as such, that we would have clarity from the Lord, that he would give us direction and that we too would be responsive to what he's directing us to. Now, once he's in Jerusalem, Paul meets with the leaders there and tells them about what he's preaching to the Gentiles. And he wasn't checking in to see if he was right. Paul was not meekly hoping for the approval of the Jerusalem leaders. He had no doubt about the truth and the divine origin of the message he was preaching. We know that God's plan was to save both Jews and Gentiles. Now, the other day, my wife and our two little girls were at Walmart. And if you know Kyla, she doesn't really like to wear shoes. I think she still thinks she's near the equator. So she likes to wear flip-flops, or what they call in New Zealand, jandals. And wouldn't you know it, one of her little jandals fell off. And Larissa's putting them in the van, and her little flip-flop was missing. And she went home with one flip-flop, and that was going to be a loss. I decided on the way home from work on Friday that I would drive over to Walmart and see if I could find this other little flip-flop hours after they had left. And so I'm looking at the floor constantly, trying to look under things. Probably looked pretty odd to people. And then eventually I had the bright idea to see if they had a, a lost and found. I waited in line at the customer service, asked the lady, and she said, yeah, we do. What are, you, what are you looking for? And I described it to her. 
And she reached in and she grabbed out this little white flip-flop. And it was amazing that we could have both together, that what was lost then became found. And that's just such a, a small little example. But think how powerful and amazing it is that God didn't want just his people to be those of Jewish origin. He wanted also Gentiles to come together to create this one family that both could be together in relationship with him. Though the church started among the Jews, we see in Paul's ministry that the family of God is not limited to those of Jewish ancestry. Paul trusted that the Jerusalem community would not delegitimize the mission to the Gentiles. And upon learning of what Paul's gospel message and ministry entailed, they recognized the validity of it. Ultimately, it was not Paul's message. He wasn't making something up. It was God's mission, God's message. Now, do you remember a few months ago in the fall, we were looking at the life of Abraham in the book of Genesis. And in Genesis 17, the Lord makes a covenant with Abram. The Lord promises Abram, who then becomes Abraham, that he will be the father of many nations, very fruitful with nations and kings coming from him. God also promises the whole land of Canaan to Abraham's descendants as an everlasting possession to him and his descendants. God establishes this everlasting covenant with Abraham and his descendants, and the sign of the covenant is circumcision. Circumcision became a necessary part that set the Jewish people apart from others. The question then became, as we go forward in history, if Jewish people are the people of God, and then after Jesus came on the scene, others are coming into the family of God, do Gentiles then have to be circumcised to belong? And here's Titus, a bona fide follower of Christ. He is a Greek and not a Jew, and he does not see a valid reason to why he should be circumcised. The esteemed Christian leaders in Jerusalem, who are also Jews, are being presented with not only the message of the gospel being shared with Gentiles, but also with a real-life example of a Gentile who has accepted the message and is following Jesus. Paul's gospel message is one without any add-ons. The burden of this gospel is Christ crucified and risen, presented to Gentiles as well as to Jews as the object of their faith. It's not the gospel plus the necessity of following Jewish tradition. It's not the gospel plus the necessity of being circumcised. It is purely the one true gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of grace through faith alone. Clearly, not everyone Paul encountered, or at least not everyone who encountered his ministry and message agreed with this. Paul refers to at least some of these as false believers. The language Paul uses has military connotations. We see the words uh, ranks and spy. Paul was in a battle against those promoting a false gospel. These people clearly did not have a proper understanding of the gospel nor of Christ's all-sufficient sacrifice. People did not and do not need to add anything else to the work that Christ has accomplished in his death and resurrection. It is already finished. Jesus has done it. These false believers may have been well-intentioned, but they were misunderstanding the message of the gospel nonetheless. What was happening was that certain Jewish people said that Gentiles could not be saved unless they too participated 
in the covenant sign of circumcision that had marked the people of God. They understood this to be a necessary pre-salvation work that Gentiles had to do in order to be saved. Now, despite the attempts of these false believers, Paul and others with him remained firm, and they refused to accept what those people were trying to put into effect. And this was such an important thing for Paul to do. These false believers were adding something that would enslave people away from the freedom that is found in Christ Jesus. Paul did not let this go, and in doing so, the truth of the gospel was then preserved for others, to the Galatians and beyond. And it's such a gift for us, too, to have this letter to this day. And we, too, have had the truth of the gospel preserved for us in part because of the work that Paul did so long ago. And we can ask ourselves, how often are we tempted to believe that it is Christ plus something else that would save us? It's a temptation for us to think that there's some work, some righteousness that we can achieve on our own or do that would set us free. But we see from this passage that it is simply Christ alone. Obviously, there are quite a few things nestled in this passage that are worth our attention, reception, and application. And one of these things is what Paul writes in verse 6, that God does not show favoritism. It didn't make a difference to Paul what those highly esteemed leaders in Jerusalem were. They added nothing to his message. God and his word are the standard. The level, the plumb line, the determiner is not a mere human being regardless of their knowledge, experience, their status, or influence. God's truth is God's truth. It is non-negotiable. It is unchanging. It is unbending. We either choose alignment with his word or we choose misalignment with it. It is set, and we ought to allow God and his word to shape us and not attempt to shape the truth according to our own preferences or personal understandings. And we see from the false believers just how futile that is. God does not show favoritism. We are all on a level playing field in need of God's saving grace. Now, Paul's private audience recognized that his mission to the Gentiles was a good one, a God-given one, in fact. Peter was preaching the gospel to the Jews, and just as rightly, Paul was preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. It is God who has worked through Peter, and it is God who has worked through Paul. It is God who has entrusted Peter with the task of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. And the gospel is for both Jew and Gentile alike. Between Peter and Paul, one man's message wasn't greater or lesser than the other. And they are not preaching two different messages. Paul and Peter are two different people, two different instruments that God utilizes, but their work is sharing the same gospel, though they largely shared it to two different audiences. There's a great deal of unity and support expressed in verse 9. It is by God's doing, by God's saving grace, his activity, that Paul is preaching the gospel to Gentiles. It is not wrong that Paul preaches to the Gentiles, and the message that Paul is preaching is not wrong. The leading authority figures in the early Christian community in Jerusalem 
namely James, Peter, and John, recognized this grace given by God to Paul. And they not only support him in what he is doing, but they see that this is a cooperative, united work in mission together. The message each one preaches isn't their own message anyway. It originates from God. And they have both the joy and the responsibility of sharing it with others. Now with Paul, the message is not being limited to largely Jewish audiences, but it is being preached to Gentiles as well. Both Jew and non-Jew have a place in the family of God because of the work of Jesus Christ. That's good news then, and it's good news today. The final verse of this passage provides us with another important insight. The Jerusalem church leaders were not telling Paul to add anything to his gospel message, but that while he is in ministry, that the poor would be remembered. Now, Paul has no difficulty with this, as it is the very thing he had been eager to do all along. This was not only a good thing to do because it helped to benefit the poor, but it was also an expression of solidarity between Gentile congregations and the Jerusalem church. Paul's meeting with the Jerusalem church marked a high point of unity in the early Christian mission. Now, ahead of this message, Bjorn asked the table question of if we have ever had unnecessary expectations placed on us. I imagine some of those conversations may have revolved around experiences in the workplace, perhaps, maybe our views as children of how we were parented, or maybe a challenging roommate or friend that we've known. But what about what we place on ourselves in terms of relating to God? Can you relate to putting something in addition to Jesus' work on the cross? Maybe that was something taught or modeled to us by someone older than us, or by someone we perceive to be further along in their own faith journey than we thought we were. Maybe it's something we're not exactly sure where we picked it up from. It may be easy and natural to think that we have to do something to earn God's goodness, to earn God's love and salvation. However easy and natural it may seem to us, attaining righteousness by our own effort is not true, nor is it possible. There are not enough good things we could do, not enough kindness we could extend to others, nor enough religious duties we could execute that could earn us eternal life in Christ Jesus. Eternal life with God is God's gift made available to us in Christ Jesus. Paul models to us that we have to stand against counter-gospel belief. So we can ask ourselves, what are the influences, if any, in our lives that would tell us that we need to add something to the gospel? Can you identify any voice or voices that would tell you that you need to earn God's grace? We don't have to be swayed by these influences. We can refuse them in the name of Jesus and ask God for his help to not give any of our attention or other parts of ourselves to these false influences. And it may feel like a battle because it is a battle. In Paul's Galatian context, these false brothers are enemy agents, and that is why Paul refuses any compromise or negotiation with them. Now for us too, whether it's a person or simply an ideology or belief, may we too refuse any compromise or negotiation with anything that falls short or beyond the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
It is worthless. It is futile to try to live in a way that is aligned with any false gospel. Now, spreading the gospel is not a solo mission, nor is the gospel only for some people to hear. We see from this passage how important it is that both Jew and Gentile are presented with the gospel of Jesus Christ and that the true gospel is carried forward. There remains good news for us today. Now, yesterday, again, back to the story of our kids. Jovi, our five-year-old, got to eat some yogurt, some raspberry yogurt that she thought was just absolutely delicious. She wasn't sure what she thought of it at first, and then she came to us saying that she loved it. And then she ran into the living room to see Kyla and to tell her the good news that she found raspberry yogurt, and it is so good. And sure enough, then Kyla wanted some raspberry yogurt too. Again, a a small, silly example, but how true would that same principle apply? If we've received the good news, not that there were any better or smarter than anyone else, as if we're all beggars in search of bread and we found the source, why wouldn't we want to go share that source, that good news with other people as well? We have the opportunity to enter into relationship with the living God if we've not done so yet. It does not require becoming Jewish. It does not require checking enough boxes on a list of things we can do to earn salvation. It is about placing our faith in Jesus Christ. The work that he has already done on the cross is enough. He has taken the condemnation that we deserve. He has paid the price that we owe. He has made the way clear for human beings to return to right relationship with God. Jesus is the way. There is none other. And if we have experienced the saving grace of God in our lives, we too can join on the mission of telling others about the good news of the kingdom of God. And lastly, there is meant to be unity in the body of Christ. Fellowship, partnership, trust. It's not about competition. It's about a joint effort in participating in God's mission to the world and seeing the wayward and lost come home, set free from the bondage of sin and death. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for your good news. Thank you for coming to this world, for living for others, for dying for others, taking our place. We thank you that that's not the end of the story, that you have risen victorious and that we, because of you, can enter into whole relationship with the Father. We thank you, Jesus, for being the way. And we thank you that this good news is not just for one group of people, but that, God, your message is for both Jewish and Gentile people alike. We thank you for your message, for your mission, and how we may cooperate with you. We love you and bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Y Church podcast. For more information about the Y Church, check us out online at thewychurch.org.